this one is 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 to 22. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, to the, the, unright, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made pro- proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only for a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear consciousness towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and, pow- and powers in submission to him. Thanks, Inika. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to have you all here. If you haven't met me yet, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Uh, and just one really brief announcement for those of you who've been coming here for a long time who know that communion's held the first Sunday of every month. A few months ago, the pastors actually agreed that we'd shift that to the second Sunday of the month. So it won't be on next Sunday. It'll be on regularly on the second Sunday of the month. So that's just if you're in that habit. Now, as Peter's highlighted for us, today we're continuing our series in 1 Peter called Glorious Exiles. Over the last two weeks, we've seen that Peter shows us how our hope of a future eternity with the Holy God means that we live holy lives right now in the present. Now, he demonstrated what this looks like by looking at three example relationships, that between civil authorities and civilians, between masters and their slaves, and between wives and husbands. His challenge is for us to display surprising submission. Now this week, Peter continues to delve into what it looks like to live this way and why we should. So let's pray, asking again for God's enabling, both to understand and to do this. Lord God, we do thank you for the privilege we have to meet together uh, in a comfortable place, 
with your word in a language we can understand, with other people that know and love you. And we pray this morning that you would use our time of reflecting on your word to bring about the change in us that you desire. Uh, we know that uh, we can't do this in and of ourselves, so we ask that by your spirit, you would enable us to both understand and respond to this in the right way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good food, good friends, having a good time. Now notice the common word, if you missed it, is good, and its use continues. He's a good catch. She's a good cook. Now I can recall on a number of occasions as I've run out, the run out of the house that my last words to the kids as I leave, be good. And at the end of the day, when I get back home and ask them how their day's been, the inevitable response, good. <laughs> so if we stop and reflect for a moment, I think you'll all agree that the diverse use of the word good means that its meaning's just a little bit unclear defined by some as moral excellence. It's also defined as merely better than average. Or the word good can even be used to mean the exact opposite of what we'd expect. She's such a do-gooder. There's a stinging criticism from the person who uses that term. And yet we're going to see this morning that this word good is the theme around which our passage resolves, sorry, revolves. So what is this good that God expects of us? And how can good result when people respond to our good with evil? Verses 8 to 12 explain what the good is that God expects of us. Verses 13 to 17 confirm our need to keep on doing good, even when people do evil to us. And then Finally, Jesus' example in verses 18 to 22 show us how God brings about good from evil. So beginning with verse 8, we see what is the good that God expects of us. Peter tells the Christians, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. See, while neither the word good nor submission are used explicitly, all of the behaviours that Peter mentions are the opposite of trying to assert our dominance over somebody else. They're all about doing what we can to benefit the other person. The previous two weeks have emphasised the stark difference between our behaviour and that which is typical. And yet again, in verse 9, the Christian response is the opposite of what the people of this world normally do. The normal response is to do unto others as they have done to us. But instead, when people do evil to us, when they abuse us, we bless them in return. This is our calling, verse 9 says, and it's as we bless others that we are blessed. The good that God requires of us is to stop putting ourselves first and instead to seek the best for others. Rather than doing all that I can to get what benefits me, I respond to others in a way that benefits them. That's what doing good is. But there's a big difference between aspiring and doing. 
Most of you have heard that I do park run on a Saturday morning. This is the mad mob heading out from in, towards North Wollongong. And before these few hundred runners start off, the person directing the run often says, make sure you position yourself according to your ability, not your aspiration. As we line up for the start, many like to think that they can keep up with the front runners. But dreams don't always match reality. And so everyone has to evaluate, can I actually keep up with these guys? Or should I start a little bit further back so I don't get run over by them? So Peter quotes the, the psalm that Peter read a small part of for us, Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, to make a similar point. It's quite likely that Psalm 34 was already well known to Peter's readers. He quotes from Israel's songbook to ask, are these words merely aspiration or are they your experience? Even today, we can sing words that speak of our willingness to sacrifice all, to trust God, regardless of the situation that we find ourselves in. But those words can be merely aspiration. Likewise, Peter and his readers could sing of doing good rather than actually doing good. But we can't let it be this way. A number of times in the Old Testament, God's blessing is described in terms of his face shining upon us. His punishment described as God turned away from us. Developing the idea found last week in verse 7 that the husband needed to bestow honour on his wife or his prayers would be hindered. So also here in verse 12, it's only when our, our good is our practice, not merely an aspiration, that God's ear is inclined towards us, that he blesses us. Peter doesn't want us to just sing about doing good. We must stop speaking evil, verse 10, and start doing good, verse 11. God's people actively choose to be different, seen in their words and in their deeds. God's people are not liars or gossips. They don't criticise and condemn. We don't swear or tell rude jokes. We're careful about what we post on Facebook and how we say it. Our speech is used for what it was designed for, to encourage and to build others up. In our household, we have the acronym on the wall, T-H-I-N-K, THINK. Think, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Before we say words, like my mum always said, if you haven't got something nice to say, don't say anything at all. We have to be really careful with our words. We know this, but then we slip into the behaviour of saying the wrong thing. Good also describes our actions. We seek peace rather than always trying to win an argument. We push ourselves to demonstrate compassion. We try to outdo one another in our efforts to show sympathy, to be the one that willingly cops it on the chin in order to bring about peace, rather than allowing grudges to remain. Now, there's nothing new in any of these expected behaviours, but their being restated by Peter indicates just how hard they are to actually do. Agreement that they're the right thing to do 
is inadequate. They need to become our practice. Studying 1 Peter, one of the things that I've been confronted by is the standard of behaviour expected of Jesus' followers. Rejoicing in trials, loving one another deeply, getting rid of malice, envy and slander, submitting even when we're mistreated. Peter raises the bar so high, it almost seems as if Christians are too good to be true. Verse 13 summarises the Christian life as literally zealots for good. A zealot, another fairly unused word, I don't know how many of you zealot in the last week either, Uh, a zealot is someone who's obsessed by their cause. Nobody has to ask, oh, I wonder what drives this zealot. And so I can put this photo up on the screen. And regardless of what you think about her, immediately everyone knows what drives Greta. She is zealous for the environment. Now, not quite like that, but similarly, people should see us. And regardless of what they think about us, instantly, they should know, ah, that one, they're zealous for good. Religious extremism is a term used to describe one of the worst problems faced by our world today. Zealots for a cause are are willing to do anything, even using violence. But Christians are to be extremists at doing good. Does that actually describe us? Are we identifiable by all the good that we do? Now, whether we attain this high standard or not, is not Peter's focus. Rather, in verse 13, he goes on to ask, why would anyone seek to hurt us if we live this way? If we are that good, won't people also treat us well in response? But he asks the question, knowing the harsh reality, is that the world often responds to our good with evil. And so verses 13 to 17 develop the requirement to keep on doing good even when people do evil to us. A bunch of naive Christians, always trying to do good, who choose to submit, surely they're open to exploitation. People will take advantage of us if we live this way. And Peter says, that's right. Don't worry and don't be surprised. If you suffer for doing what is right, verse 14, you are blessed the very thing that Psalm 34 promises us. And as our tent up on the stage reminds us, Peter seems to enjoy putting two seemingly incompatible ideas together, glorious exiles, and now suffering and blessing. From the very opening of his letter, Peter has indicated his awareness that the Christians are suffering. In the very first verse, they're called scattered exiles, suffering grief, chapter 1, verse 6, having war waged against them by sin, chapter 2, verse 11, ill-treated by inconsiderate harsh masters, chapter 2, verse 18. Suffering for Peter is not about being poor or getting sick. God's people suffer. That is, they receive the opposite of what they deserve because they follow Jesus. But suffering is not 
is not unexpected and it's not to be avoided or run from. Rather, as they await the perfection that eternal life with God is promised to us, it's normal for life here to have many instances of suffering. And my guess is that I don't have to try and convince you of this point. Our experience is that life this side of heaven is not a bed of roses, a bed of thorny rose stems perhaps, but very often not comfortable. Some suffering is, a is just a consequence of sin in the world. Some is directly a result of our following Jesus. But the more difficult thing to believe is that in our suffering, in our good being repaid with evil, we receive a blessing. It seems so contrary to logic, so contrary to our experience. But it shows that blessing is about receiving God's pleasure. If we define blessing in terms of physical possessions, financial status, comfort in life, it misses out on what is most valuable. If any of those were the indication of blessing, then many of Peter's first readers were not blessed at all. But true blessing is to have God look on us with pleasure, a beautiful picture of an intimate relationship. And so for people who do consider their relationship with Jesus of utmost importance, how will they respond to mistreatment? The answer, they keep on doing good. But how? Well, it comes down to our motivation for why we are doing good. Verse 15 tells us that we all need to have thought very carefully about why we live so differently to the world. If we're doing good, because we believe it's the recipe that guarantees bringing about a change in the other, well, it makes sense to give up at some point when that change doesn't occur. But if we're doing good because we know that it's pleasing to our Lord, then we keep on doing it regardless of people's response. We do it to please Jesus, not others. That's what verse 15 means, to revere or to set apart Christ as Lord. And so when you mow your neighbour's lawn or look after their kids and then they turn around and gossip about you, don't evaluate it finally as being taken advantage of. You did it because that's what Jesus would have you do, not for the thanks of your neighbour. When your workmates laugh at your church involvement, when you cook a meal for a sick relative and they complain that you use too much garlic in it, don't resolve to protect yourself from further harm in the future by not talking about Jesus or not doing them any further good. Keep on doing good, regardless of the response, because we do it knowing that it pleases God. Now, clearly, when we live so differently, sometimes it will lead to questions. People will look at how we live life and be bamboozled. If that happens, we need to make sure that we answer with gentleness and respect. Verse 15. Be firm in your convictions but never arrogant in your presentation. Why didn't you get even? You had such an opportunity to humiliate her. How come you keep on helping them when they treat you that way? Our response, because I hope in Jesus. 
I don't need to get revenge because God's going to sort it all out. I don't need to hold a grudge against him. I don't need to turn the cold shoulder towards her. My hope is that Jesus has already paid the price for it and will finally fix everything. I leave justice to him. Each time we're asked how we can respond with good, we point people away from ourselves towards our living hope. Spoken of first back in chapter 1, verse 3. Our suffering becomes the opportunity for us to speak about Jesus. And even then, some will still criticise us. And in response, verse 16, be so consistent in doing good that even though they don't like your doctrine, they cannot criticise your deeds. We're to be like Daniel in the Old Testament. Though they look for a flaw, there's nothing that they'll be able to find. Now, this sounds to me a lot like this is all about how we choose to act. We do this, they respond like that. They're determined to do evil, we set ourselves to do good. But in verse 17, Peter reminds us of the bigger picture. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, notice this doesn't say that we are to seek out suffering. Christians are not a group of holy sadists looking for and enjoying suffering. Suffering is rightly held to be a consequence of sin in the world, something unpleasant and by nature something to avoid. But if suffering comes into your life, then recognise that it can be a part of God's will for your life. Not because he likes to see you suffer, but because this suffering is an opportunity for him to do something extraordinary in you and through you. The suffering that Peter has in mind is the result of actions that God holds people accountable for. But it's also a part of a bigger plan, his plan. Once again, Peter goes to the supreme example of Jesus to show how God uses even wicked responses to bring about good our third and final point. Jesus' life was a life of good, or as verse 18 calls it, of righteousness. And in response to his righteous life, Christ was crucified. In this, he sets the pattern for what Peter's readers were experiencing. Do good, get crucified. But it wasn't just the fact that Jesus had suffered in response to good. What Peter's readers needed to know was that there was a purpose in Jesus' suffering. Jesus willingly suffered because of what it would achieve. Verse 18, he died as the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The good brought out of the bad by God was the restored relationship that he made possible. Our status is chosen by God, those who have a glorious inheritance, is only because God specialises in bringing good out of bad. And likewise, God will use the suffering that we endure to bring about good too. Now, the remainder of verses 18 to 22 are extremely tricky. Peter starts by referring to Jesus' death. Jesus made alive by the Spirit, 
in the spirit reached out to spirits from the time of Noah's flood, who are now imprisoned. Now, the Apostles' Creed famously interpreted this to mean that Jesus went to hell and preached in the three days between his death and resurrection to those who had died centuries earlier in the flood. And that's one possible interpretation. Others see Noah's preaching many, many centuries earlier as done in the spirit of Christ before his incarnation, his being made man. But the main point that Peter is making is not about where Jesus went between his death and resurrection or who empowered Noah's preaching. Rather, there are two parallels that help us to understand our own suffering. Firstly, Jesus' suffering demonstrates that doing good can be responded to with evil. And yet Jesus' ongoing good response in the face of suffering was used by God to bring about a good outcome. Verse 18 again, he suffered to bring you to God. What God did in Jesus' situation establishes the pattern which gives us great confidence in our own situation. Suffering is not pointless or merely to be avoided or endured. We can trust that God will bring about good out of our suffering. So don't flee from suffering. Don't make it your life goal to avoid it. God allows some suffering into our lives in order to bring about good. But secondly, the typical response to God's message is rejection of it. According to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Noah preached to many. And yet, as we see here in these verses... A mere eight people were saved. In this, the flood sadly parallels the common response to the message of salvation today. Before the flood, Noah's message was mocked and rejected. The vast majority considered it nonsense and, and no doubt persecuted uh, Noah for proclaiming it. But much greater suffering than the ridicule that Noah faced came in the form of floodwaters, and only those who responded rightly to God's message, were saved. Likewise, trusting in the resurrection of Jesus may be considered unnecessary today by the vast majority, and they may turn around and mock or even persecute those who make such a claim. Yet Jesus' resurrection is the only means by which we can be saved. Verse 22 reminds us that he has ascended to his rightful place with authority over all, and it is only his patience that delays his return as judge. In the face of suffering and people's evil responses to our good, we can take great comfort in the knowledge that God knows what he is doing and our, security, our, our eternity is secure. Our suffering now is not happening outside of the boundaries of what God controls. It is for a limited time and we endure it in the hope that some will see and in response reconsider their reaction to Jesus. And so we can commit to doing good regardless of the response. I asked at the beginning, what is this good that God expects of us? And, and how can good result when people respond to our good with evil? Well, clearly Peter is not merely telling us to give more to charity 
to help people across the road, to tell the truth and keep all the road rules. Being good has nothing to do with the common thinking that God will accept us because we're decent moral people. God is nothing like Santa Claus, checking to see who's been naughty, who's nice. And unlike me, running out the door telling my kids to be good, Peter has shown us that the good he is talking about is a complete reorientation of our lives, a sustained focus on doing the good of others, seeking the good of others. Our words and our actions will be for the benefit of others. And we'll keep doing this regardless of people's response, knowing that God can even bring about good from evil. We'll gently and respectfully point people to our hope because our ability to do this to any degree is made possible only because Jesus did it perfectly for us. Let's pray. Lord God, it's so easy to uh, read through your word, uh, to hear things that are already familiar and think, yeah, already know that one, already doing that one. And yet, Lord, a, a command to do good, to speak what is right, uh, is something that we're all so familiar with. And yet it can so easily remain mere aspiration rather than our action. And so, Lord, I again ask that you would help us to reflect on your word, that you would enable us to understand ourselves and our own motivations, that you would... Uh, by your spirit, work deeply within us, convicting us of sin, pointing us to Jesus and the work that he's done on our behalf so that we would truly be enabled uh, to live good lives. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.